Welcome to another edition of the New Hampshire Journal podcast presented by the Josiah Bartlett Center for Public Policy, where you'll find Drew Klein lounging around with his feet up on the desk, uh, sipping an adult beverage in the middle of the day. Right, Drew? Every day. <laughs> and I also want to thank our sponsors, uh, Dr. Bruce Houghton at PerfectSmiles.com and NashvillePerfectSmiles.com. More about him uh, later. The big story of the week. Forget Dr. Jill Biden coming to New Hampshire. Forget the COVID relief plan. The big story of the week, the breakthrough report from the Josiah Bartlett Center on education and funding in New Hampshire, right? Of course. Every time we release a report, it's the big news of the week. Okay. I just want everyone to know, Drew has promised me that this somehow links to Megan and Harry. I don't understand how this works, but he says Graham is going to be huge, Megan and Harry. So Yeah, no, see, you misunderstood. What I said is somehow in your mind you will find a way to link it to Megan and oh. Harry. That's how it works. <laughs> no, but seriously, so what's the uh, takeaway headline from this groundbreaking report? Well, so what we did was we looked at Senate Bill 130, for those of you who aren't in the know. Um, the legislature has a bill that would create education freedoms, freedom accounts. So they work like a health savings account does. You, um, families who would be interested in getting an EFA would apply to the state. And the, um, if they qualify, the state would set up a, um, through a, through a scholarship service would set up a, an account, a bank account. And the, the per pupil funding that the state would normally send to your district public school to educate your child would go into the bank account if you choose to go that path. And then you could use that to um, pay tuition to a private school or another public school. You could use it to do tutoring services. You could buy special education services. You have a long list of education-related expenses you could uh, spend it on. So what we did was we looked at what would be the fiscal and economic impact of this bill. And um, it, a couple of caveats right up front is the bill, um, the Senate version limits eligibility to people of no more than 300% of the federal poverty level. So that's a big limitation. And so we did the math on el finding who would be eligible and what the, spec, uh, what the state could expect to save or uh, spend. And what we found was that overall taxpayers would save uh, more than $6 million in the first two years of the program. That is mostly, um, that is from local uh, taxpayer savings from your uh, local um, property taxes, the program would cost the state not nearly what its critics have been suggesting. So uh, we projected it would cost the state um, a little over uh, about 2.4 million in the first year and about 5.9 million in the second year. But that's state money. And the reason it costs the state money is because every eligible, every kid who's eligible to attend a public school would be eligible to receive this um, account. So you don't have to be enrolled in a public school. If you're a homeschooler or, or you go to private school and you're in K-12, you would be eligible to receive this account. So there's a cost to the state up front, but the local taxpayer savings um, are pretty big and they outweigh the cost of the state. So in the first year, it's um, about $1.85 million in savings to local taxpayers. In the second year, about $10.7 million. So you can see, um, and that grows over time. So um, our, our big takeaway is that it's going to save taxpayers millions of dollars in the long run uh, and in, in the short run. As the uh, program scales up, it'll save more money. And 
that's kind of the big takeaway on this bill, that it ended up saving taxpayers money. So uh, let's get a couple of things for the people who aren't familiar with it. When people hear that the money is going to go with the student, they think, oh, it goes away from the school. And you're uh, talking specifically about the state funding because there's two streams, two big streams of funding. One is local property taxes and the other is the state, is it like a per kid check basically that goes wherever the kid goes? Yeah. So most people, public education funding is fairly complex and there is your local taxpayer portion. And that is most um, two thirds ish of, of what is spent on public education. The state kicks in a portion and under this bill, uh, so the average, the, the state, when you count all the aid you might get if you're low income or if you're a special needs kid, on average, the state grant would be about $4,600. And that if you choose to go to a public school, they just go straight to the school. If you choose to do an uh, education freedom account, it would go into the bank account and then you could spend it however you want. But that's and important. So, I, I want to interrupt you right there because that's important. We're only talking about $4,600 per pupil average, you know, ballpark, et cetera, because the vast majority of funding comes from local. How much is New Hampshire spending per kid approximately for a year of K through 12 education? A lot more than people think. So when you um, total it all up, we spend on average. Uh, now, remember, every school district spends slightly different sure. dollars, but on average statewide, it's nineteen thousand eight hundred dollars per student to, for for one year. So twenty grand 20, for one hundred and eighty instructional days. Twenty grand. So people, it's funny because people will say, "Well, private schools are so expensive compared to public schools." Well, no, <laughs> public schools still cost about twenty grand a year. It's just that you pay it in your taxes. So it's the costs are dispersed. So people don't feel that hit um, in their pockets like they would if they were paying the full writing that check right out of the pocket. So that that's how it works. So um, the the EFA would take a tiny fraction of that forty six hundred dollars out of that nineteen hundred uh, almost two, twenty thousand dollars. So um, it is not the whole cost. It is the state per pupil adequacy grant. And so the thinking behind doing these education freedom accounts is that. Public schools, the traditional public school works really, really well for a lot of kids. And yet there are some kids that it doesn't work well for. They just don't fit into that system. The state pays $4,600 on average to educate every child, right? Why would the state pay that money to a school directly if that child struggles to, to succeed in that school? A better option under this program would be to let the parent control what that $4,600. It's still being paid to educate the child, but instead of the state dictating where the money goes, the state still dictates where it goes because there's a limited um, list of educational services you can spend. But instead of the state saying it can go to this one place and only this one place, the state gives the parent more discretion to choose where to spend that money. Now, one of the things that's interesting under this bill is that you could spend it on private school tuition, but that's not the only option. You could spend it to tuition your kid to another public school. Right. You could also spend it on tutoring. You could spend it on all kinds of services. You could do online. You could even spend it on community college. So it allows the parent a lot more flexibility. You can use it for homeschooling. 
You can use it for learning pods. Yeah, but no matter what you do with it, Drew Klein, you're taking it away. This is what I'm being told over and over again. It yeah. takes money away from education. Right. Um, but it doesn't. And that's that. Does it take it away from so, the people who are getting it right now? Well, so here's where they, they use these terms of art, right? So they say, um, they don't say it's taking it away from education. But as a cause, of course, it's going to education. It's going to educate that child. They're saying it, it takes it away from the public school. But again, that child is no longer educated in that public school. So families leave. This is another thing that people don't quite understand about the way public school funding works. Um, superintendents have to budget in uh, from year to year based on fluctuations in enrollment. There is not a set number of kids in your school every year. It's not exactly the same. It's not exactly the same kids. We found that it fluctuates, um, you know, five to six, seven percent. Uh, every year. And that's the normal budgeting. So it is not the case that there's just this firm, hard set um, a, a pot of money that comes into the school every year. It goes up and down. So what we're looking at here in these EFAs is parents getting to decide whether they want to stay in that assigned public school or go to a different public school or a different type of educational service. And that will be just part of the churn. It'll be part of the process of how we educate kids in the future if this bill passes. So again, instead of sending the money directly to the school and telling the parent to access that money, you have to go to this school and only this school, even if your child does not do well in the school, even if these kids in this school are bullying your child, even if your kid has all kinds of problems that aren't served by this school, that's the only place you can go to get this ed education money that the state sets aside for your child. To I, I don't know, Drew Klein. This sounds a lot like hate to me because, <laughs> you know, you've got people right now who are getting the money and you are talking about, well, do they educate your what's educating my kids got to do anything? They need the money. And does it matter if their school's terrible? I mean, come on. They, they got to eat. They got to pay the bills. So what if you let the kids leave and half the kids leave because the school's so bad? That doesn't, I, I, that, th those school employees still got to make their car payment. Why are you being so mean and not letting them just keep getting the money? So one of the things that is interesting about um, the sort of presumptions and then the sort of way we think about public schools in a broader culture is there's this huge assumption that school spending has been going down for decades, that schools are getting less and less and less money. And that's just not true. We looked at school spending and enrollment from 1994-95 school year to the 2017-18 school year. We found that enrollment during that period declined statewide by 9%. But expenditures went up by 66%. So Wait, I'm school, sorry, sorry. 9% yes. fewer students, 66% more money. That's right. And that's adjusted for inflation. So they have a lot more money and a lot fewer kids and class sizes um, have gone down. So the number of um, pupils per teacher has gone down, the number of pupils per total staff has gone down. So they have fewer kids, they have more staff. What we found was that um, they increased the number of teachers by 23% as the number of students fell by 9%. They increased all other staff, that is everybody who's not a 
a full-time teacher or an actual classroom teacher, they increased by 80%. 80? 80. 80. Eight zero. 80%. Eight zero. And um, so total spending went up by 66%. If you take out the capital, like if you like building expenses that you're going to repair your school or build a new high school, you take that out and you just look at current spending, which is your regular daily budget, that went up by 77%. Wow. In New Hampshire. But here's the good news, though, is during that same period from the mid-90s to today, our test scores have doubled. The kids are twice as smart. Except our report found... (laughs) What? We looked back. So we looked at the NAEP scores, the National Assessment of Educational Progress. And we found that if you look at the national average, NAEP results from 2003 now there was a we went to 2003 because that was a sort of a, a year when um there was a change in the way like everybody was tested yeah. 2003 so so like that, that sat thing where like it used to be 800 was great and then all of a sudden it <laughs> yeah wasn't it's, anymore, it's, it's a way thing. you can compare everybody it's the, like right, the baseline year it. for comparing everybody so um u.s grade four math scores went up six points uh in that time uh new hampshire's went up two um, our grade four reading scores went down as the U.S. average went up. The U.S. scores went up in math and our, uh, by four points, ours went up by one. And grade eight reading, US, U.S. scores were flat. Ours went down. So by comparison to the rest of the country, from, 20, from 2003 to 2019, our scores have actually lagged. We've been falling behind compared to the rest of the country. Now, we, we score really well on those tests comparatively, but the rest of the country has been slowly gaining on us in this time. And again, meanwhile, our current spending per student has gone up by 77%. So our staffing has gone up. Our total expenditures have gone up. Our current expenditures have gone up. More teachers, more staff, more spending, fewer students, and flat to declining NAEP test scores. So why do crazy people like you want to change it? I don't understand. <laughs> why would you keep pushing for all these reforms and stuff? I don't, I don't get it. Well, so one of the things that we also looked at, and um, this was to give us a bit of a comparison, right? So Arizona and Florida are the two states that have had the largest, most robust, biggest school choice programs in the last uh, couple of decades. So we looked at how um, they compared on uh, NAEP scores to how uh, New Hampshire compared. And um, they had bigger gains than we did. So, um, and they not only had bigger gains, um, far bigger gains than New Hampshire did. In fact, um, Florida and Arizona had quite large NAEP gains uh, in the last uh, two decades, or um, we're looking at 2003 to 2019. But one of the things you have to consider when um, comparing test scores and academic performance is poverty rates because there's a strong correlation between poverty rates and low testing. New Hampshire has the lowest poverty rate in the country. So we should expect to have pretty high test scores. Um, So Arizona and Florida produced much bigger gains on their NAEP testing, even though they had child poverty rates about two and a half times higher than ours. And both of those states spend about 70% less per student than New Hampshire. And yet they're producing bigger gains in the last few decades than New Hampshire has been. And one of the plausible reasons 
is perhaps because they have these really big choice programs and what the research on um, Arizona's and Florida's choice programs shows, as well as many others, is that they tend to produce test score gains for low-income minority students who are struggling in traditional public schools. They also produce test score gains for the students who remain in public schools, who don't go out with those scholarships. So, um, you know, our thinking based on research is that a program like the ES ESAs or Education Freedom Accounts, as they're called in this bill, would do a lot to, you know, um, help students find the education that fits for them and help bring those test scores up a little bit. Now, that's not test scores aren't the only reason you do this, but that's one of the factors. So I've got the big question for you, Drew Klein, the Josiah Bartlett Center coming up. First, though, I want to thank our friends at uh, Perfect Smiles in Nashville, perfectsmiles.com, Dr. Bruce Houghton and his crew. If you have been looking for a dentist who cares about you, about your experience, you want to see Dr. Bruce. He's just a great guy. And if he ever gets out of his line, his boss, Stephanie, who happens to be Mrs. Dr. Bruce Houghton, absolutely gets him back in line. And if you're concerned about uh, COVID safety, uh, Dr. Bruce and his crew have really figured out the right way to take care of your dental health so that you can continue to uh, take care of your smile and take care not to catch COVID, to be careful, to be safe. You can have it all. You don't have to let your dental health suffer because you're worried about COVID-19 or waiting to get the shot. Don't wait. Go to perfectsmiles.com right now. While you're there, you'll see videos from me, my old buddy Howie Carr, and some other folks who have had the pleasure of working with Dr. Bruce. We talk about our experiences, and then you'll want to go to perfectsmiles.com. Okay, so the big question for you, Drew Klein, is we have had it beaten into our heads for the past, uh, you know, 10 months or so. Follow the science. Follow the science. Data-driven. You know, when, when Andrew Cuomo isn't, you know, groping some poor intern, he's telling everybody, all I do is follow the data. Why do you think it is the case that the data that you're presenting which, by the way, Max matches a, a pretty steady, growing mountain of data about what happens when you interject uh, parental choice or choice into an education system. Why isn't the data carrying the day? Well, for one reason, it's up to groups like ours, um, you know, nonprofits who are interested in these issues to do the research on them and academics. A lot of the research has been done at the college and university level. Um, so... It's kind of hidden. We don't get a lot of news stories out of this kind of stuff. For some weird reason, media don't report a lot of these stories showing these big academic gains and, and other gains. Uh, so hopefully we'll get some coverage out of our study. But um, people don't know the data. So that's one reason why it doesn't drive the argument. And two, people have vested interests in protecting the status quo. So that helps drive a lot of it. And then a lot of parents just understandably, American parents are busy, they work, they feed their kids, they're exhausted when they get home, and they don't have time to do all this research, but they know they like their teacher. So there's just this sort of presumption that the school's doing okay for my kid. Um, for the for a large majority of parents, that's true. And which is another reason why these things, you'll hear often that school choice programs will destroy public education. Well, that is A, not true. Um, and B, it wouldn't possibly be true unless public education was horrible. If everybody wanted to get out, then maybe you would have some big fear that it was going to destroy the system. But in fact, most people don't want to get out. 
most people want to stay, and that's fine. All education choice does is give an option for those families that do have kids who are struggling and aren't finding that their local assigned school, the one option that they're given in most places, uh, doesn't work for them. And so what they found in places like Arizona and Florida and um, other places that have done big school choice programs is that take-up rates are relatively small, much smaller than people assumed. And um, you don't have a mass exodus. You don't have half the pe- kids leaving the right. system. You know, even in, in low-income areas where you would think you would have, you know, really bad test scores, you would have a lot of people leaving, you know, it's it's the people on the margins that leave. I still think that those numbers about the uh, uh, tons of money that are pouring in to serve a diminishing number of students, a trend, by the way, that's only going to continue. The, uh, the estimation is that the school system is going to lose another 10% in the next decade or so in New Hampshire. The, the fact that those numbers don't have a major impact, that they're not, in fact, I, I would challenge anyone listening to this, have you ever seen those numbers reported anywhere except for New Hampshire Journal? I mean, it's, it's just not going to, you're not going to see it reported in, in a typical news story on schools. The fact that those numbers don't have power, to me, is a reminder that as much as politicians talk about the science and the data, that's not how this gets done. This gets done with politics and emotion and all sorts of other things. Yeah, we're humans and we're um, we're driven by stories and emotion, and, and that tends to drive the day a lot of the time. But, you know, we, we point out one of the numbers in our report that I didn't read is interesting. So changes in total expenditures per student. So in 2003... The U.S. total expenditures per student was $9,299. New Hampshire was 9802 Very close. 2017, total expenditures per student in the U.S. were 13800 and in New Hampshire were 17000 So our total expenditures per student have been rising at a much faster rate than the rest of the country as a whole. So I mean, any way you look at it, our spending has gone up. It's gone up dramatically since the mid nineties and our NAEP results have not really improved in a lot, in a lot of cases they're going down. So, um, you know, that's just what the numbers show and people can make of it what they want. I just, you know, I'm very grumpy this week about the science thing, because if we were in fact following science, I wouldn't be as sleepy as I am right now because we wouldn't keep screwing with the clocks (laughs) twice a year. You know, it's just another reminder that nobody's following the science. Listening to Dr. Fauci talk about uh, immunization, and talking about, well, maybe by July you can, what, what are you talking about? We'll have more shots. We, you change. That changes things. That's what the science says. Oh, no, no, no. Ugh, it's just so frustrating. If, you, know. you know, we could do a whole separate podcast just coming up with all, we could do, each of us do a list of all the things that politicians do contrary to the science. Yeah. Uh, penny, like why are we making pennies? Data. Pennies make no sense. They cost almost two cents to make. Nobody needs them. Six time a week, six, six day a week mail delivery. Mail is obsolete. You don't need three. You don't need two day a week mail delivery. And yet we still spend billions a year doing it. I don't understand. Yeah, let's let's do that. Let's do that podcast. We come yeah. up with a list of all the all the dumb things the government does. <laughs> and then, of course, there's the problem of free speech, which they're going to solve as soon as they hear this podcast. So that will help. Drew Klein at the Josiah Bartlett Center. Where can people find this report? Hey, that's a good question. So uh, we are releasing it on our website, jbartlett.org. So you can go up there and find it. And we will have lots of tables and charts. So if you like charts and, and spreadsheets, 
will have the data there and you can go down and you can even see the spending um, per pupil in your own district. We have these numbers broken down by district so you can see um, how things have been going in your town. And we'll be covering it at New Hampshire Journal. So if you uh, go to nhjournal.com, you can find our coverage and, of course, sign up for our daily newsletter. You guys have a once a week newsletter, right? Yes. Every Friday. People can sign up for it at jbartlett.org. That's all the information you need, folks. Now, you've got you've been given your math homework by Drew Klein. So we will re, we will regroup here in a few more days, and I count on everybody to show your work. He is Drew Klein with the Josiah Bartlett Center for Public Policy. For NHJournal.com, I'm Michael Gray.